Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Blue Nation podcast. So this is the first episode in two weeks because last week I went on a short holiday to London. And in fact, I went to the Houses of Parliament. It's a little bit of political research there. Uh, but I hope everyone's been doing okay. And we have got an announcement to make. And so that announcement is that we are changing up the schedule of the Blue Nation podcast and how we provide the content. So at present, we do one show a week and that show is converted into one episode and four separate videos released throughout the week on YouTube, which you can see now if you look on YouTube and type in the Blue Nation podcast. However, now with the summer holiday shown to a close, I will be soon back at school and therefore I won't have as much time to do this but I still love it so much. Uh, so we're going to be changed up. And if you follow me on Twitter, which you can do, you will know what it, that is. But I'll explain it now on the show if you're listening on Spotify or any other podcasting platform. So the new schedule is as follows. There will be, and you know, this is a trial at the moment, so things could change. We're just going to see how it works. But this is what we're going with at the moment. So we'll do one show every four weeks instead of every week. Now, I know that's a lot a bigger gap between them and four times as much. You know, that's a quite a large one. However, to compensate for that, we'll be doubling the amount of topics we discuss each week from four to eight. Of those eight, they will be converted into two separate episodes. I've not yet decided whether I'm going to put the, whether I'm going to release them at the same time or split them up and by how far that would be, but we'll decide that in due course. However, for this episode, it'll only be five topics as we have a bunch of unseen footage, uh, which I seems to have been lost when <laughs> uploading it to YouTube. So that will release on YouTube in just five topics for this week, but in folks time, will be eight topics if we continue with this model. So that is the new schedule. I hope you like it. And the streaming days will change a bit and hopefully you can have a bit more of an orderly fashion and a set time on when we will do the live shows. But without further ado, let's get on with the show. Now, the first topic that we're going to be discussing is channel crossings and the migrant crisis and how it is at record levels. Records will be broken day by, by day and day. And, you know, it's a serious problem that we are facing in this country and the vast majority of people want it sorted. And the vast majority of people do not support people coming over. They don't want to see that happening. And there are many problems with it because, well, most importantly, we have a legal migration and asylum system. And it is simply unfair that someone could potentially be rejected from having legal migration to this country or legal asylum, perhaps, because someone, and they may have lots of skills, they may contribute lots to this country, because someone has crossed the channel on a boat or a raft normally. And that's simply unfair, and that needs to be sorted. And let's not forget, these people coming across on rafts it's not safe at all. And in fact, allowing people to come over is supporting the criminals, supporting the smugglers who are destining these people to 
you know, a chance of death, and many people do die uh, in the English Channel. And thankfully, the UK border force, they will escort people to the to Great Britain, to the island, which we will discuss later, whether sh we should escort them to there. Because, of course, you have to keep them safe. And, you know, we don't want anyone to die. However, these smugglers, in on many occasions, most occasions, in fact, they force people to go on these rafts once they've paid for it, and it's often hefty fees. People have sacrificed their entire livelihoods to come over here. They don't allow them to turn back. And, you know, in some cases, they even point guns to their head. So we are helping these smugglers at the moment by allowing the crossings to occur, not having a proper grip hold on the situation. And also a big problem of people coming over is that they mostly enter the black economy by existing outside of the tax system, a job that they will not pay tax on, and therefore they creating a toll on present taxpayers in this country, which of course nobody wants. So, you know, what do they exactly offer to the country? And while there are many people who will come over, like potential refugees who are fleeing from conflict, but we still have legal asylum systems, and that is very important. And it's not like we don't allow anybody into the country. So let's look at other models around the world and where they've been successful. So often Australia is touted as being very successful in their migration system, a very strong border force and strong immigration system. And we have introduced a point-based system like they have, and you know, many people like that in this country. I I've supported it personally. However, and you know, that's for legal migration. And we seem to have got a bit of a hold on the, or at least hopefully soon we will have with the new immigration bill, a hold on legal migration. However, now we need to focus on illegal immigration, which is happening quite frequently and a lot more, and it's only gonna rise. So what Australia do to people coming over on rafts is they send them back not necessarily to where they came from, but to an offshore island where they will be processed and adjudicated. And therefore, Australia is sending a clear message to people coming across that you will not be allowed in, that we will simply start, um, turn you away. And, you know, I think this is something that we can do. Of course, the UK border force can escort them, but they should not be allowed on to the cliffs of Dover onto the British shoreline. We should not allow that to happen. So that has been very successful for Australia. And that's the main thing that's gonna, that we need to control because France has been a bit problematic over the past 10, 20 years with uh, preventing immigration to the UK across the channel. There've been lots of accusations of French police officers not doing enough to stop them and potentially sending them away, sends that message out, it is unattractive. And don't get me wrong, smugglers, they're always going to be there. Uh, and of course, if less people were traveling, there'd be less of them, but it's hard to monitor everyone. It's not going to prevent them. However, if you, main thing we need to focus on is sending that message to people wishing to come over to this country illegally, that you will not be allowed in. You will not be 
able to come to the UK. That is what we need to do, and we need to send that strongly. And people claim that this is racism if we don't allow people over, or that will become sort of totalitarian state. However, it's simply not the case. Look at, say, Denmark, for example. They put in uh, lots, they similar thing to what Australia did, and put in, you know, very strong laws against illegal immigration. And no one, and that's work for them, but no one's claiming that Denmark's some xenophobic, totalitarian state. It is not the case. And the vast majority of people in this country do not like to see this happening. And it is very unsafe for those people traveling over. And they could go through the legal systems that we have. So that is that. And now I believe it is time to move on to the next topic for today. So with the Afghanistan crisis exploding, uh, both inside that country and outside between the different uh, diplomatic organizations, between uh, the various Western countries, special relationship has been dampened quite a bit and UK-US relations are at a low. So exactly what has happened? So due to chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, there's been a lot of tension between the UK and US. So back in April, when Biden announced that before September 11th, all troops would be evacuated from Afghanistan, allegedly the UK was not, uh, they did not agree with this. However, they went along with it. However, now they, with not everyone being evacuated, they, the UK wanted the deadline extended beyond August the 31st, which the US was not prepared to do. And there have been some accusations, again, that the Foreign Office wanted a gate to be remained open at Kabul airport, which was later bombed by ISIS-K. However, Dominic Raab has strongly denied these claims, so we'll never know whether it is true or not. That's just um, an allegation. And, you know, this can provide a big problem for us because we want a trade deal with the US, you know, now with Brexit and the Global Britain Initiative, UK-US relations need to be the strongest they could ever be. And especially, let's say, in the face of the enemy, in the face of the Taliban, having weak alliances is not a good look at all. And apparently, internally, in London and Washington, their nicknames and little jabs at each other have been used. For example, apparently uh, Boris Johnson has reignited the Sleepy Joe nickname and the cabinet are apparently referring to Joe Biden as Gaga. Of course, the Sleepy Joe nickname was used by Donald Trump and Biden is not so much a fan of that for obvious reasons. And apparently Biden is continuing to hold his grudge against Boris Johnson, once describing him as a mini Trump. And I think it's clear to everyone, in fact, that Biden holds a grudge against the UK. That is quite apparent. And with little things we've seen over the years, that has been shown. So, you know, this isn't the best with having Boris and Biden. It's 
those two for this special relationship that has been very important. You know, we've had some very strong partnerships through the years, such as Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt and Reagan and Thatcher. But Biden Boris is probably, you know, going to be one of the more important ones where we're going to have up with those two partnerships. However, it's not looking so good. And as it stands, as it's looking likely, of course, it's still a couple of years away and everything could change. But if the American election was state, Biden would probably be re-elected. And his intention is to go for re-election in 2024. And it looks likely that Boris, again, unless something drastically changes, will win the next election. So it, them two will likely be the heads of the UK and US governments for a long time to come. And this is not good. And apparently the US's position in NATO has been damaged by this Afghanistan withdrawal and the chaos about it. So hopefully this can get sorted. I doubt that the special, I, I severely doubt that the spe, special relationship could potentially be collapsed due to this, that it could completely fall apart because it has been so strong over the years that no individual could topple it. And hopefully they can sort it out when it is very important that they do. Now, before we get on with the next topic for today, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Spotify. And if you like, subscribe and share it on YouTube, that would mean so much to the channel. So without further ado, let's get on with the rest of the show and on to the third topic for today, which is this uh, UK looking set to join a trade block with nine trillion pounds. Otherwise known is the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific, i.e. CPTPP. <laughs> it's a bit harder to say than perhaps the EU or Kansuk, a bit harder to remember. However, <laughs> it's something that we look set to join, hopefully by December 2022. That is the aim of the Trade Department. And what exactly is it? So again, it's a big, massive trade organization in Southeast Asia between 15 countries, I believe. Uh, and there are a couple of us such as Canada and Australia who are part of it. But the primary, uh, per the primary country in this partnership is China. And, you know, many people have said China's technically our enemy. Is should we be aligned with them for trade? Yes, I believe we should because we have entered the age where diplomacy is the most important thing between relations in opposing countries. And let's not forget how much products do we get from Southeast Asia, especially, and I repeat, especially China. You know, look at the kitchen, look in, look in your kitchen or Look, wherever you want any product, there's a good chance that it's from China. So it is very important. And again, if we have a very strong um, trade relationship, tensions between the two countries, between the UK and China, are less likely to explode. And, you know, I do really doubt that I would ever reach war. I definitely don't think that would happen. That would cause 
that'd be the end of the world, perhaps, uh, most likely. And, you know, it definitely helps to prevent that. So this could be worth quite a lot of money to the UK every single year. And no, it can't replace the EU. However, the EU's economic size is shrinking, and that is natural. So are we, to be honest. But in Southeast Asia, it's rapidly growing. It's bubbling and bubbling. So it's very important that we have these relations and that this global Britain that we now live in, it have these relations with other countries and have these trade agreements that could be so crucially important to us. And that's one of the reasons we've left the EU, as we've discussed many times, to make new trading agreements and to offer new opportunities for jobs, for commerce and for so many things and so many people in this country. And in 10 or 20 years, two thirds of the world's middle classes will live in this region. So it is very important that we have a good relation with them. So that was the third topic. Let us know what you think in the comments below or on our YouTube channel or on Twitter, which you can follow. And also I want to remind everyone in the description below, you'll find a topic submission form in which you can submit a topic that you'd like to see us discuss in each episode. And I believe we have a couple of those, which we will discuss next time uh, because we've got lots of stuff to discuss today. But we will uh, remember in the description below, put your name, just your first name, where you live and what you'd like to see us discuss. And you will be featured in the show. Now onto the penultimate topic for today. We're going to be discussing whether we should give more people more power to the people and hold more referendums. <laughs> Almost said people to the power. <laughs> but in on June 23rd, 2016, we held the EU membership referendum. It was the largest democratic vote taken by the British public ever larger than Thatcher's, Thatcher or Blair's wins in 1979 and 1997, respectively. And the question remains now, now that it's been over five years since I had a kid, should we have more referendums? For After all, we had a massive vote to turn out, and likely, if Parliament had decided this membership question on their own, we would still be in the EU, undoubtedly, at the moment. However, the people decided that they wanted to change, they wanted to leave. But should we have more of them? Well, I know what many of you will say at the moment. We are sick of elections and referendums. After all, between 2015 and 2019, there were three elections and one major referendum and in 2014. Before that, there was a Scottish independence referendum, so lots of stuff occurring. However, we don't really have that as much important elections as, say, other countries. Let's say America, for example, they have the presidential election fixed in every four years. They don't have staff elections, I guess. But then every uh, two years, they will have Senate elections and uh, House of Representatives elections. 
So that is a lot more than us. And on top of that, they have state elections and local elections, which we do have, but not a lot of people vote for that. And then they might even have town elections. And then they even have referendums. Often all of these votes can come on the same day. And that is a different topic to discuss whether all our votes should take place on the same day to increase voter turnout for all of them, such as the Police and Crime Commission elections. I doubt many of you will have voted in them or perhaps even heard of them, but hardly anyone votes in them. Voter turnout is very low and many and it hardly makes the news that's how <laughs> like less of low of an interest there is in them but that is another topic as we've discussed however one another problem with having more referendums is exactly what would you vote for let's pick the last few years for example what would have been referendums so Theresa May's Brexit bill probably would have been there, and potentially even Boris Johnson's Brexit bill. Of course, <laughs> I think people would have been sick of <laughs> Brexit by that point. People already were, and never to mind another two referendums. What else could you discuss? A new Green Deal, Green Deal, immigration laws, railway nationalisation. I'd imagine many of them people are, would simply not be that interested and not pay attention to maybe immigration they would potentially the green deal but not so much railway nationalization i doubt many people uh, really care about that sort of thing so perhaps a system could be used for petitions to receive a set amount of signatures like in switzerland say about three million just a number off the top of my head would have to be received to turn into a referendum. However, I doubt many people would, would vote for them and therefore it be, the elections become quite weak and they can become unrepresentative of the population's opinion and the population's will, which of course nobody wants. And let's not forget, we elect MPs to make these big decisions. Of course, let's say they a referendum, that was a major decision that they decided the public should decide. But further than, you know, these major decisions aren't uh, decade-defining. I believe that MPs should still, you know, have the final say because, after all, what is the point of MPs if they if we leave all the decisions to the public? And so. There's also the problem that you can over-democratize yourself out of existence. <laughs> and it can create tricky relations of countries such as Switzerland, for example, with the EU, that you have tricky relationship with them because of their di direct democracy system. It doesn't necessarily have, we don't have to go to the level of Switzerland where, you know, it's extremely democratic and the people vote for lots and lots of things however it will you know it might be safer to let the MPs decide rather than people however it is top, something that we could do slightly more of you know such as independence uh, well I don't particularly want any independence referendums but maybe some major major decisions that parliament aren't deadlock over that they can't decide 
maybe we should hold them and maybe we could, you know, make some big decisions that the Parliament and the House Commons will not. So let us know what you think in the comments on YouTube or on Twitter. Now, finally, for the final topic for today, the fifth one, it is time to discuss whether it is time to abolish the monarchy. Now, this is a topic that I've wanted to discuss for a long, long time, and I've been putting off, but finally decided that today is the day when we discuss it, when we, this major icon of Britain, should be toppled or whether it should, you know, stay as is. So, the Sovereign Grant Report recently stated that the Royals cost the British taxpayer a whopping £67 million per year. They are a drain on taxpayers and they are, a they are a burden on our society and the their time has passed. We should, without a doubt, abolish the monarchy. Now, I hope you believe and understand that my statement is completely ridiculous. They are incredibly important to the UK, and I am not being serious there, because they should not be abolished. Yes, they do cost tax lot of taxpayers' money, but that number is completely dwarfed by how much they are worth to the UK, how much they make, which lies at about nineteen billion pounds, according to the according to Forbes pre-pandemic, and this is primarily through tourism and products. But even beyond that, they act as a beacon of Britain throughout the world strengthening our position in it and they represent our proud if not flawed at times past and history one that and this monarchy is the most famous in the world and has survived crisis after crisis uh, three things constant in life death taxes and the royal family <laughs> now also be even beyond that, even beyond the symbol, they're an inspiration to us. Folks, and they can do lots of good work in the UK. Let's not forget they do. They don't just sit around doing nothing all day. They go to different places and make key addresses and can raise capital quite a bit. They can make money if that is your biggest concern and your biggest issue with them. For example... The Queen's coronavirus address during the pandemic inspired many, many people to keep on fighting and to get through lockdown. Or when the many, much of the royal family took the COVID vaccine that inspired many other people to take the vaccine. They think, well, it's good enough for the Queen. It's good enough for me. And this happened, especially with medicine, uh, for a lot of years. For example, when Queen Victoria first took chloroform, the, at the time, a new and safer, if not fully safe, but very effective form of anesthesia, 
uh, but I inspired many other people and it almost became accepted to take it after that. And many people have said with the Meghan and Harry damage done to the royal family that I could topple it, that the time has passed, that is now time to abolish them. But the royal family and the monarchy has survived much, much worse than Meghan and Harry. And let's not forget, they adapt to the times. You know, the royal family is not what it was a thousand years ago when it ruled over England, much like nearly every country in the world. And they were the sole, if like, they were the main governing body for the UK, uh, both in practice and in name, and that parliament and the people were beneath them. That is no longer the case. And while the Queen does have a major role to play in the governance of this country, she is uh, the de facto, uh, the jour even, top of the government. She has the final say on every bill. Her role is simply constitutional. And if if she were to ever deny, uh, if she were ever to not sign off a bill agreed by Parliament, she would likely be stripped of power, much like has happened in Luxembourg a few years ago with the Grand Duke when he opposed a bill. Uh, but I really doubt that the Queen would ever do that, and she does have a say, especially with royal family matters. But she doesn't have she doesn't have a major say in the governance of this country. And again, back to Meghan and Harry. With all due respect, they are simply too inconsequential to severely damage the monarchy. You know, Harry is the he is the grandchild of the Queen, but he is not in line for the throne, and he is nowhere near being king. And of course, Meghan, she was initially part of the royal family. She was a commoner. So again, they have two, they're too inconsequential to make a major impact. And I'm sure many lessons have been learned after that fiasco, but is likely gone and probably won't return. Only in a few press, <laughs> a few of the newspapers and tabloids, but often very serious. And only, in my opinion, only a reigning king or queen could potentially topple the monarchy, and that even that is a stretch. And let's not forget, the queen is still head of state in 15 countries around the world, from the Caribbean to Canada to New Zealand to Australia, and she is even the head of the Commonwealth, a collection of 55 countries that used to be part of the British Empire and King Charles will succeed her as the head of the Commonwealth. She still has a major constitutional role and is a symbol of many things British and many things good around the world. So that is all for today. It is looking like it might be the longest show we have ever done. We've discussed five topics, say. Eh? We have discussed channel crossings, the special relationship, uh, the CPTPP, that's hard to pronounce, I do apologise, whether we should have more referendums, and whether it's time to abolish the monarchy. So that is all for today. Over the next few weeks, for the next show, there 
is looking like there'll be a cabinet reshuffle very soon. Uh, Gavin Williamson and Dominic Robb look the most likely to move. It might not happen, though. So we're going to discuss all that. If by in four weeks' time there's been no reshuffle, we might just may still decide to discuss it, what could potentially happen. But if it has, we'll discuss the fallout of it. Uh, so let us know what what moves you'd like to see. Liz Truce has been long tutored for a change of, uh, I think the foreign office would suit her quite well, especially considering she's just been at trade office and she's been very success successful and is one of the most liked cabinet members, especially in the Conservative Party itself. But would you necessarily move Liz Truce? I don't know. I feel as though... She's doing such a good job at the moment in a very important department. I don't really want to move her. Um, definitely in the future, but not at the moment. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Sajid Javid has been tutored again, or Michael Gove for the Foreign Office. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel as though I think Michael Gove could potentially move, but Sajid Javid has literally just moved the, the Health Office quite recently. And especially in the pandemic, having lots of changes uh, very soon after each other, it could create a bit of chaos in it. <laughs> but let us know what you think. And that is the end of the show. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>